Hello and welcome to episode 35 of the Boss Podcast. I'm Kirk Bailey and this week I am joined by Rita McGrath who is consistently ranked top 10 management thinkers in the world and was ranked number one for strategy by Thinkers50. This week we look at her 2019 talk, Seeing Around Corners and How to Spot Inflection Points. Welcome to the Business of Software podcast where we share talks from our conferences and discussions with software people that will make you think... You can find out more at businessofsoftware.org. Rita McGrath is a long-term professor at Columbia Business School and one of the world's top experts on innovation and growth. She's also one of the most regularly published authors in the Harvard Business Review. In this talk, Rita will provide an overview of eight practices that you can utilise to increase your awareness of shifts in the business environment and pending inflection points, plus how you can capitalise on them. Happy listening. I always learn so much when I come here because it's not a world I normally live in. Uh, so what I'd like to share with you for the next little bit um, is some work from the new book, which I'm delighted you all have got a copy of. So uh, I'll give you a little overview and a taster and some practical things that you can do uh, yourself. So the book is about strategic inflection points. Now, what, what may you ask is a strategic inflection point? It's a moment or, or a se- sequence of events which eventually cause the assumptions you are making about your business to become separate from the reality of your business. And the reason this happens is any business is created at a particular point in history when certain things are possible and certain things are not. So as a business begins to discover its business model, its product market fit, it begins to enjoy the recipe for success, or more specifically its leaders do, you start to become dependent on a set of um, metrics, routines, things that are taken for granted as the route to success. And as you get better and better at running your business, you learn what metrics to push and which things to move faster and which things to step back on and what is going to lead you to nirvana. Um, an inflection point changes those realities. It, it represents a 10x change or a significant change in some parameter that you thought explained what would lead to success in your business. And so the easiest way to understand this is if you think of conventional retail. You know, conventional retail was all about real estate, you know, and every single metric in that area had to do with how well you used that real estate. So how did this store do compared to other stores? How much did you move over a certain limited period of time? Um, How well did you turn your inventory? And so on. You get the idea. So you grow up in this business, and most of us will spend you know, a lot of our um, lives in a business that's sort of running. Um, And what happens is something comes along, in this case, the internet, and starts to invalidate those assumptions. So that connects to the seeing it coming part of an inflection point. But as the book makes clear, I hope, just seeing it coming isn't enough. It's not enough to see that it's an opportunity. It's not enough to see that it could take your business to new heights. Uh, You have to be able to then mobilize the organization uh, to follow it. So the book really has three themes. How do you spot an inflection point? And we'll talk about that a fair bit today. How do you decide what to do about it, which is not always easy? And then how do you bring the organization with you? So I thought to put this in context, I'd start off with an interview of someone who saw an inflection point coming and proved spectacularly unable to do anything about it. So if I could have the video. 
So this is an audio recording of the now former Sears CEO, Eddie Lampert, addressing employees at the company's headquarters in Illinois after filing for bankruptcy, which happened yesterday. Lampert rarely speaks publicly. Here's part of his reflection when Sears and Kmart merged in 2005. I believe back then that massive change was coming to retail. And with massive change comes massive opportunity. If the world of retail was going to be stable, it would have been much more difficult to create something different. There'd be no Amazon, just a larger Walmart. And there would not have been the opportunity for Sears to break from the pack once again and change the face of retailing like it always had in the past. As we all know, we haven't capitalized in this opportunity the way I would have liked. Instead of growth and investment, we have faced retrenchment and restructuring. Lampert also said, quote, we have to figure out how to take what we have learned and fight another day. Melissa room for the bankruptcy filing is for reorganization. <laughs> so Eddie Lampert um, bought into Sears, I think in 2005, right? I mean, you know, he's owned this entity for a long, long time. Saw the inflection point coming. Oh my God, the internet's gonna change things. Now here's the other interesting thing about inflection points. They feel when they are upon you as though they happened overnight as though they came out of nowhere. And yet, if you look at them, they take a long time. And it's a bit like uh, the old quote from Ernest Hemingway's book, The Sun Also Rises, when one character asks another, well, how did you go bankrupt? And this character responds, oh, well, gradually, and then suddenly. <laughs> <laughs> And that's kind of how inflection points are. So here's the thing, Eddie Lampert's no dummy. I mean, he was at one point being lauded as you know, the natural follow-on to Warren Buffett. And he saw the inflection point very clearly, and yet the piece that involved bringing the organization along just never really happened. And there's a lot of reasons for that. Um, but you can sort of see both in stock price and in revenue, this went on for years. Years, a long, slow decline. And so that's the second piece of my argument. So the first piece is inflection points change the assumptions underlying your business. And if we're so invested in the business of today, we can easily miss them. But the second point is the good news is you have time. These things don't emerge overnight and come to destroy you, you know, from nowhere. There, there's always early warnings, there's always uh, things. Now, the other interesting thing about the Eddie Lampert story is there were other players in the areas served by a company like Sears, namely Home Depot, Lowe's, right? Sears was a big provider to home hobbyists. And both of those companies figured out how to serve customers better, how to keep stock better, how to keep people coming into the stores. I mean, they've had their ups and downs, but by and large, their story has been a growth story over the same time that Sears' story has been a decline story. And I think that's another property of inflection points. When you do them right, they can take your business to new heights. When you get them wrong, they can be kind of devastating. Now, all this is set against a backdrop, and the backdrop is something I wrote about in my previous book, which I've spoken about at Boss before, which is this notion of shorter and shorter competitive advantages. So in strategy theory, right, for years, we had this idea of this fabulous thing called a sustainable competitive advantage. And the idea was you found an attractive position in an attractive industry. We used to teach this stuff. And then you would throw up entry barriers like crazy and protect that position for a long time. And so all of your internal gearing, a lot of what you did as a company manager was you exploited that period of advantage. That was your job. And my argument has been for some time, that's great if you can find one. 
in the world most of us live in, competitive advantages come and go. And so this chart is just a chart from the gaming business, and it reflects market share um, position in various gaming platforms over time. Many of you will know this industry better than me. But you know, in the beginning, what did we have? We had arcade games. You had to go to a physical place to throw money at this refrigerator-sized machine. Um, it was only open when, when it was, uh, you know, the opening hours were there. The games were mechanical, right? The game and the intelligence that played the game were, were built together. There was no sort of software there. Then we had the introduction of software, and now you could actually have games and devices separate. That was a big advance, right? Um, then you had sort of games that could be in different form factors, games you could take with you, games that could be played on general purpose devices. You started to see different kinds of games. So instead of just combat games, you had Civilization and The Sims and games like that where you were creating different worlds. Today, where do we play games? Windows on your phone, yeah, in virtual reality now. We're starting to see AR and VR enabled games. It's super cool. There's this application where you can have like a Tyrannosaurus Rex coming into your conference room. It's pretty, pretty astonishing what they, they can do. Now, what matters here is the pattern. And here's the core thesis. If you're trying to run a company for the long run, if this is what's going on outside your organization, you need to have an equal amount of innovation and variety inside your organization, because that's the only way that you're going to respond and keep up. The other thing I'd draw your attention to is the pattern of the life cycle of a competitive advantage. There's a period when it gets created and grows. There's a period when you get to exploit it. And then there's a period of erosion when it goes away. And I believe most executives I work with, and I work with a lot of them, um, most of them are completely baffled by anything other than the period of exploitation. Now, you're all kind of entrepreneurs. You're in the software world. So you're more familiar with the, the, the full phases. But a lot of your clients won't be. And I think that's one of the things that you're going to have to get smart about, which is teaching them how to get up that innovation curve so that whatever you're selling can become part of the businesses they want to exploit going into the future. So I think that's, that's uh, kind of the, an introduction to an inflection point. Now let's talk about some specific ones that I think are particularly germane to a whole class of new kinds of disruptive competitors. And this is the kind of dramatic shifts that have been created in the assumptions by companies like Google and like YouTube and like Amazon Web Services and of course like Facebook. Um, so let's take, let's take a specific historical example. And I'd like you to imagine that you are an executive at Procter & Gamble specifically in the Gillette division, right? These, these are the razor people, right? And Gillette has had this amazing business model. It's lasted them literally for decades. We invest in R&D. That allows us to create better technology. That allows us to uh, then use our armies of salespeople and massive global distribution to get the word out. We support all of it by massive mass market advertising. This is awesome, right? This is a machine. It's very hard to copy that model for others. Now, what were the products like? Well, King Gillette, the founder of the company, invented the world's first safety razor, right, which you could actually use at home without having to hone it on a, on a strop. Um, and this was great. And they were better and better and better razors. And then, come 1990, they had this idea. The R&D people said, hey, you know, we could put two blades on this stem, right? And they, they dithered and they said, OK, we're, we're going to launch it. We're going to be aggressive. It's going to be called the sensor razor. 
And they had this cartoon advertising the sensor razor, which was awesome. It had, it had like the first blade would come along and like pick the hair up from your face, and the second blade would come along and slice it off. It was awesome, amazing. Two blades, better than one blade, right? This is amazing. Okay, so that serves them well for about 10 years. The sensor razor is at the top of its game, and then they're like, okay, what's the next thing? How do we get more profit? Now remember, their model is R&D, better product, higher prices, global distribution, blah, blah, that's the model. We are, we, are, we are executing that model really, really well. So they invent the Mach 3. Yes, three blades. Three blades better than two blades, of course, right? And, and uh, gentlemen, I don't know if you remember this, but if you bought a Mach 3 razor, you were cool enough to sit in the cockpit of a fighter jet. <laughs> That's what the advertising was. It was like the best a man can get. Okay, and this goes on very nicely for five or six years, so they're doing really well. And then, and then, strategy calamity. Schick gets bought by Edgeware, and they rush to market with the world's first four-bladed razor. You can only imagine the consternation, the wailing, the, oh my God, what do we do? You know, in the Gillette boardroom, because I mean, you've, you've spent literally billions of dollars teaching consumers two blades better than one blade, three blades better than two, and now a competitor has the world's first four-bladed razor. I mean, what is one to do? Well, of course, the first thing they decide to do is unleash the lawyers, right? They tie everybody up in court, and then they rush to market with the world's first Five-bladed razor, the fusion. Yes, okay. So first of all, you can kind of ask the where is this all going, right? There comes a point at which we've kind of, in Clayton Christensen's famous words, sort of overshot the market. What do we have? Little tractors running across our? I mean, I don't know. Okay. So, so the thing I want you to think about here, though, is this is what is on the mind of the people over at Gillette, right? This is what they're worried about. They're worried about chic. They're worried about five-bladed razors. They're worried about what's the next innovation we have to have so we can keep our prices up. Meanwhile, meanwhile, in a, not, a, well, not in a garage, but you know, certainly in a living room or two, there's a guy called Mike Dubin uh, and his co-founder who found a company called Dollar Shave Club. And Dollar Shave Club was essentially born out of opportunism. This, his partner had secured some, well, not too fantastic, but not too awful either, Korean razors and wanted to know how to unload them. It's a real entrepreneurial story. And Mike Dubin, the, the founder and the face of the company, has this vision. He says, wait a minute using all of these new technologies. So I can use Amazon Web Services to build my tech stack, right? I can use kind of programmers on demand to build out whatever I need to do. Um, I can use you know, flexible temporary resources, but more importantly, I can use YouTube and Facebook to get my message out to millions of people. And I can use the sort of budding frustration of many men with the shaving experience. Not the shaving experience so much as the shaving maintenance experience. You know, you have to go to the drugstore, right? And they have the shavers locked up. They have the razors locked up in this, you know, shaver fortress. And you have to, like, go locate a retail person who's willing to, like, undo the thing for you. And so the person comes up with the jailer keys, you know. And you feel like a criminal. It's terrible. Plus, you could forget them. You could run out. And Gillette's not stupid. These are very expensive razors. The margins on these things are great. So there's a lot of negatives. So Dubin basically puts together a YouTube video, which is targeted mostly at a younger demographic. And it, the whole, if you haven't seen it yet, you must go see it. It's really hilarious. Um, but spends like, I don't know, $25,000 on this thing puts it up on YouTube, becomes a viral sensation, opens for business, and his concept is very simple, direct to consumer. 
you know, who needs these guys? Why do you need to go retail? We are Dollar Shave Club. We will send you these blades. Each one, a dollar plus some shipping. You'll get them every month. No running out, no going to the razor fortress, none of this nonsense. And at a pretty decent price, right? So direct to consumer. Now, this was never possible before. In the world Gillette lived in, this is not a possible thing. You can't go direct to consumer. First of all, your direct customers are all going to be ticked off at you. And secondly, it's just too hard, right? What Dubin does is he, he works his way around television. He works his way. All this stuff is no longer necessary. Now, think about it. Prior to YouTube, prior to Facebook and so forth, if you wanted to get a message to a billion people, you had to be Metro Goldwyn Mayer. You had to own a movie studio. Right? You had to have billions of dollars worth of assets. Once these inflection points have happened and this digitally enabled ecosystem exists, that's no longer necessary. So you're, you're, you're the guys at Gillette. You're worried about chick. You're worried about, you know, you're not thinking about some guy in a proverbial garage putting a funny video on YouTube that goes viral. Okay? Do you, do you see what I'm kind of getting at here? It is so easy if you're an incumbent to get blindsided. Now that's obviously an opportunity for the people doing the blindsiding, which I gather most of your companies would be on the side of. So I think it goes both ways, right? Um, so what happens? Uh, Dollar Shave Club launches in 2011. Uh, they formed in 2010, they launched Lightning Fest 2011, and by 2015, Gillette had lost something like 16% of its market share. They went from 70% of the U.S. market all the way through to um, down to 59%, and they're fighting like crazy to try to keep that. And so what do you do as an incumbent? Well, you know, Gillette, of course, launches the Gillette Shave Club. Duh. <laughs> We've got the Gillette Shave Club, and they're kind of going to market with, you know, the blades you love, the convenience you want, that kind of thing. But I think, you know, the, 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 the loss has been real. And, uh, and I think it's just interesting to tell that story in the light of what's on the minds of the various competitors uh, in, this, in this sector. So one of the things software has done, it's enabled on a mass scale, never seen before, access to assets rather than ownership of assets. And that changes the strategy conversation. Our assumptions about what we have to own to be competitive are totally different today than they were before. And I'm not saying that's good or bad. What I'm saying is it changes the game. And that's really what the book's about. It's about how do you get ahead of some of those changes that can be so disruptive. And one of the biggest sources of blind spots I see is that we define ourselves, in many cases, as part of an industry. When I, was a, when I was starting in the field, all the cool kids were doing industry analysis. I mean, that's what you did if you were a cool kid in strategy. You looked at order of entry statistics and R&D intensity and the top three players and all that stuff. Everybody was looking at industry. Those of us studying innovation, God forbid, you know, we were sort of huddled in the corner for warmth. I mean, there was not very much patience given to us back in those days. And what's happened in the meantime is the concept of innovation and the concept of strategy have really come together uh, so that you can't really today talk about the one much without talking about the other at the same time. And I think increasingly what we're seeing is digital is now part of that conversation. You almost can't talk about innovation without talking about software or digital in some way. Um, but industry as a construct, I think is a big blind spot. So here's a study that was done by the Wall Street Journal. Uh, it was done in 2014 and they were interested in understanding what had happened to American households spending patterns since the advent of the first true smartphones. And what they found was spending was way down on items like home you know, furnishings and apparel and cars. Spending 
two biggest categories of spending up by double digits during that time period, which don't forget, encompassed the Great Recession, so that's even saying more. Um, internet to the home and cellular communications. So people were literally saying, I'm not gonna buy a pair of jeans this year, I'm gonna spend the money on my cell phone minutes. So if you're a jean maker, if you're an apparel maker, and you're busy benchmarking yourself against other apparel makers, as good strategy practice would suggest, you're missing the point completely. What you're seeing is people are not spending on you because they're spending on these other categories. And that suggested to me, we need a different concept than industry. We need to stop thinking about competition being confined to industries because it's just not helpful in a world full of these inflection points. Instead, what we want to think of is what are the jobs customers want to be done? I'm sure you're familiar with this idea. It was created by Clayton Christensen. What are the jobs customers want to be done? What are the alternative ways those jobs could get done? And what pot of resources exists to enable that job to get done? And that's the way I think of something I call a competitive arena. So this little slide here, right, it, you know, what do customers buy? Well, they buy ball bearings and roller, but what do they want? They want the experience of flying on a skateboard, right? That's what, they're, that's what they want. That's the outcome, to go back to Teresa's uh, discussion from the other day. Um, so let's take an example near and dear to many of our hearts. Let's think about clothing. What's the job? Okay, so how many of you have teenagers? Or, or you all were at one point teenagers, right? So, so what's the job teenagers do for, clothing does for teenagers? Popularity. Self-expression. What tribe am I part of? What tribe am I not part of? You know, it's a lot of communication clothing does for teenagers right now. My mother's definition of quality in clothing would be a little different, right? My mother's definition would have been clothing that lasted through multiple wash cycles. And it held its form and it didn't stain and it didn't wrinkle and it was sturdy and it was, you know, probably purchased at like JC Penney's. That would be my mother's definition of quality in clothing. Your friendly local teenager, these happen to be Japanese teenagers because they just seem like such an, you know, extreme expression of the breed. But it's all about communication, right? Now, what are teenagers doing these days? They're all hermetically connected to these devices. And beginning in around the year 2000, what were they doing with those devices? Texting, but not just text, right? Yeah, selfies. Uh, and that started way back when in the early days of text messaging. I mean, you could start to take pictures on your phone even then. And there was a Washington Post story that I refer to in the book, which talked about teenagers shopping in the year 2007 already on their phones, comparing with their friends. Should they buy this? Should they buy that? All right, so we've established that. Now we've got sort of Instagram, right? And we're now in this very interesting moment where like, it's almost existential. You know, if a tree falls in the forest, and nobody caught it on Instagram. Did it happen? <laughs> you know, it's, it's uh, like, talk to teenagers. It's scary sometimes. Um, but, you know, your, your, your goal for clothing a lot of times is you want to look good for that perfect selfie, right? And, uh, and the clothing, as far as you're concerned, could self-destruct at that point. It's like the modern-day version of Mission Impossible, right? <laughs> this message will self-destruct after you've done what you need to do with it. Well, what does that tell us about quality in clothing? What are we after? Are we after the same blue outfit in event after event? No, we're after clothing that looks fantastic for long enough to take the perfect selfie and then we want to move on. So I would argue that whole trend towards fast fashion 
which is an environmental disaster. And I think that we may be on the brink of a backlash, but we've been living with it now for probably, what, almost 20 years, that what teens want is this fast, inexpensive, it doesn't have to last season to season, I wear it a few times and I'm done kind of clothing. This has actually produced also some interesting little secondary flurries because thrift shops and charity shops are now enjoying a resurgence in popularity because what teens are realizing is, wow, you can get it really cheap there, wear it a few times and you can bring it back and they'll take it, <laughs> you know, amazing, it's great. Um, now this is one of the trends, it's not the only one, but it's certainly one of the trends that's contributed to the decline of traditional department stores. Now again, existing model based on the constraints that were possible of what, what made that industry what it was at the time. Uh, we have four clothing seasons a year. We send our designs over to Asia, at the beginning of every one of those seasons, they make the clothes, they come back by ship. We sell what we can at high prices at the beginning of the season when whatever hasn't sold, we discount or we get rid of. That's the model. And instead, what you're seeing is the fast fashion retailers, what are they doing? It's continuous flow, right? Think of Zara, right? You like a black skirt in Zara, you better buy it today because it may not be there tomorrow and there's no guarantee you're ever gonna see it again. It's a much more continuous flow, fast kind of, kind of activity. Very, very difficult for a traditional retailer to deal with because it's a different, totally different business operations model. Now, as I said, there's always a winner in these inflection points. Somebody always wins. In this particular case, I'm going to pick on Ross Stores. You know, Ross Stores is a store here in the U.S. They're kind of like a treasure hunt. You know, they, they have this wild assortment of brand name and off-brand and all kinds of cool things, but they have done fabulously well over the last, um, you know, 20 years or so. Oh, interestingly, Ross Stores' CEO, who happens to be a woman, was the only woman named to Forbes' list of the 100 most innovative people in the United States. So I will let that be what it is, but um, <laughs> a very interesting question there. Anyway, uh, but they clearly did very, very well with this trend. So I'm not saying these are predictive. I'm saying they're sort of, if you're looking out for those weak signals, you can see them a lot more. So what I'd like to do with the bit of time that remains to me, I'd like to take you to an exercise that, we, uh, that I, I, I've got into the book, which is how do you prepare yourself to see these weak signals. What, what are some practices you could use uh, to get yourself ready to do that? Uh, so that's where the little sheet that was just handed out comes in. And what I'm gonna suggest is as I'm going through this, maybe make some notes for yourself on what do you do. And if we have time, we'll have you compare notes with a colleague, if not necessarily in this format, maybe at lunch or, or some other time. So these are some practices that uh, my research suggests are helpful in helping CEOs, leaders, senior executive teams actually see what's going on, actually see what's going on. And the inspiration for this comes from Andy Grove's original work in the 90s on strategic inflection points, which was obviously a huge influence on me. And interestingly, not a whole lot has been done on that since his seminal book, uh, Only the Paranoid Survive. And what he said in that book was, he said, if you are in the midst of winter and you want to know where spring is making itself felt, you have to go to the periphery because that's where the snow is most exposed. And so the way I reframe that is snow melts from the edges. You have to get out to the edges of your organization to see where it's, what's really going on. So the people talking to customers, talking to competitors, seeing what's actually happening in the marketplace. Snow doesn't kind of present itself in an organized manner at your corporate conference room table, so you can make a net present value informed decision about it. It doesn't do that. <laughs> you know, it comes out there from the edges. So these are eight practices that um, I've found are kind of associated with 
being able to get out to the edges. So the first one really has to do with how you use your personal time. Do you budget some personal time regularly to personally get out to the edges and see what's going on with your company, your customers, you know, what's happening with those exchanges? Now here's the problem. The organization will try to hide the truth from you. They don't mean it out of bad intent, but it will happen, especially the more senior you get and the more power you have, the harder it is to find out what the hell is going on, right? So here's an example of this. Uh, this was The Gap, and The Gap had made a commitment in 2015 to try to give their retail workers more reliable hours. Right? So rather than sort of work hours fluctuating up and down every week, let's see if we can add some predictability into the mix. And they were really struggling with this. And so the New York Times wanted to know, why is this so hard? And so they went and interviewed some Gap store managers. And the first thing they said was, oh, well, it's corporate. Corporate, you know, corporate will tell us we've got a huge nationwide promotion on skinny jeans happening on Thursday. And so all the skinny jeans need to be up front and center to be, you know, in conformity with national promotion standards. And the store manager's like, well, I have everybody like running around moving the skinny jeans to where they needed to be. And, you know, so corporate, big problem. But the second one I found even more interesting, executive visits. As one reported, and you can see it here on the slide, I must have had two or three shifts working extra hours to get ready for an executive visit. So let that sink in a minute. Is the store that executive is visiting the store you and I see when we go shopping at the Gap? No. Nah. It's got fresh light bulbs, everything's gorgeous, they've probably splurged a little on extra scent maybe, and some chocolates by their cash register. I don't know what they do, but, but the point is the store we're seeing is a fiction. It is not the normal experience. Your people will do this too, because it is human and it is natural. If you have company coming over, of course you tidy up the living room, right? But if you really want to see what's real, you have to get beyond that. And a lot of times you have to remember the organization is not necessarily your friend when it comes to finding out what's really going on. And the bigger your organization gets, the harder it is to cut through that. So that's, um, I think, the first question to ask yourself. Do I regularly make time? Am I sure that I'm really seeing what's going on? Or am I conveniently listening to what I'm being told by people who honestly would rather I didn't hear the bad news? So good, good question to ask yourself. Second question has to do with diversity. Um, and this is not diversity in the politically correct sense, but it's diversity in a really important sense. So here's an interesting bit of research that was done by my colleague, Kathy Phillips, and she studies diversity. Um, and one of the difficulties with real life is that it is almost impossible to attribute causality to outcomes. You can make horrific, stupid, self-serving, idiotic decisions and have a good outcome. And you can make well-crafted, thought-through, carefully argued, you know, very good decisions and still have a bad outcome, right? So there's this disconnect between causality and what actually happens that we struggle with in real life. In a laboratory, on the other hand, we can construct experimental conditions so that you know whether a group did well or did badly, which is what Kathy did. So here's the bottom line to her findings. Homogenous groups, meaning people that all thought the same way, and in her studies it was mostly groups of men, uh, similar ages and socioeconomic backgrounds, 
they felt great about the work that they'd done when they were put into an experimental situation. Oh, it was fantastic. We all spoke the same language. We, we got very quickly to a decision premise. We finished the work efficiently. It was fantastic. In other words, homogenous groups feel great about the work that they do. However, their work output is actually not very good on the experimental standard that Kathy set up. Diverse groups. So you introduce a few women, you introduce a few people from other cultures, you sort of mix it up a little. Oh my God, that was so hard. Like I had to really struggle to even understand what that person was saying. We, it took us forever to come to a conclusion. It was just really, really effortful. But the work output was much better. So here's the super ironic thing I'd, I'd encourage all of you in this room to think about. Homogenous groups perform worse on creative problem-solving tasks, but they feel great about it. <laughs> Diverse groups perform far better on problem, creative problem-solving tasks, but it feels awful. It's so hard. It's so miserable. Take that and use it, right? Because homogenous groups that all think the same way, that all come from the same place, that all have the frames of reference, miss things. So here's one of my all-time favorite examples of this. I was actually in a conference, something like this, um, uh, being presented with sort of new product development pitches. And there was this incredibly lovely team of people, uh, young people from Ivy League schools all over New York City. And their project was a thing that's now called Link NYC. And the idea was they were going to take all these payphones all over New York and replace them with these cool kiosks. And the kiosks were going to be amazing. They were going to have unlimited internet access and place you could charge your phone. You get like local directions. And it was going to be, it was like a very utilitarian, great replacement for the payphone. And people were going to use these things the way that the team thought they would, right? They'd look up the latest trendy restaurant and they'd ask for directions to the latest, you know, the best tourist facilities and they'd, you know, that kind of thing. So, um, so they do a citywide rollout of this program, which is a mistake to begin with. You, know, you want to test a little before you do that. But anyway, they did the citywide rollout. And within 24 hours, what do we have? We have homeless people setting up living rooms around these kiosks and watching YouTube for 12 and 18 hours a day. They've got no place else to be. Why not, right? We've got, we've got people watching unlimited porn, you know, in Times Square. We've got... <laughs> I mean, just all these things happening when you introduce unfettered, unlimited access to the streets of the city of New York. And my argument is not that they were a stupid team or this was a bad idea. My argument was there was nobody on that team who actually understands what happens on the streets of the city of New York to alert them to what the possible unintended consequences could be. Big embarrassment. They had to withdraw. They had to shut down all the internet functionality. And they're at the point now where they're even talking about taking away the phone charging thing, which you know, they're debating. But I think it's a reg it's, it's the kind of mistake you can make when you don't have diverse perspectives weighing in on a decision on your team. Third, um, and this has been touched a lot on in this conference, so I won't spend too much time on it, but if as a leader you can give small teams um, the context, the objectives, as, as um, was said earlier in the week, uh, the, the, the metrics, you know, the, the clarity, you can get away from top-down decision-making, committees, you really can be much more crisp. This particular slide is taken um, from Patty McCord's deck. You may, she's a legend in Silicon Valley. Patty McCord was uh, the HR person responsible for setting up the Netflix culture. And part of her task in doing that, part of her output in doing that task, was she put together this like 
page PowerPoint deck laying out all the principles of what she thought Netflix culture should be. Um, and it, it's still available. It's on the internet. It's one of the most downloaded PowerPoints of all time. If you haven't seen it, it is totally worth getting it. If you just search Netflix culture or Patty McCord HR deck, you'll find it. Um, and it's just full of wisdom. I mean, real wisdom about what kind of company do we want to have. And she put this together in the very, very early days at Netflix. So this wasn't like by the time they'd succeeded. This was the forward-looking view of what their culture should be. And this was one I thought was good. So the question for you is, do I empower small agile teams? Do I let them make those kind of type two decisions where we're not betting the ranch? Um, or, you know, am I top-down control, telling them what to do, you know, that kind of thing. Because the more you can let them try things out, the more experimentation you'll have, and the more you'll get insight from what's out there at the edges. Uh, do I have resources for little bets? This, this is an example, one of my favorites, is from Adobe. Uh, and Adobe has this program, many of you will know of it, called the Kickbox. And if you are an employee at Adobe, and it could be anybody, you know, it doesn't have to be just the scientists or the R&D team, you can request a kickbox. And if you answer a few simple questions, they'll give one to you. Inside the kickbox, which is a red box, are some instructions. Uh, it's, it's like a game almost. You beat the box by going through a certain set of steps. It's also got some uh, card for Starbucks, a candy bar, because you know all innovation drives on, uh, thrives on caffeine and uh, sugar. But the most important thing in it is a $1,000 gift card. And you are not required to get justification for how you use that. It's an experiment. You use it. The only requirement is that you report back what you learned into a common database so that others can learn from what you tried. And you know they've given out over 1,000 of these things over the time. And so that's, what, a million bucks? And uh, the, the CEO gets asked all the time, well, my god, giving ordinary employees $1,000. He said, look, relative to what we spend on R&D, it's nothing. And look at the variety of experiments we're able to fund by doing that. Basically, it's pushing experimentation capability right down to the level of the ordinary person. Also, it's teaching them what innovation's all about. Remember, we have this life cycle. Most of the people in a large organization like Adobe have never built something from scratch. They don't know what that's like. So this is simultaneously training plus empowerment uh, people at the edge to kind of do things. You might know this guy. This is Steve Blank, a very good friend of mine and Alex's. Um, and uh, he's got a phrase I think all of us should take to heart, which is, there are no answers in the building. There are no answers in the building. If you want to know what's happening with technologies, with customers, with you know, where things are happening, you get out of the building. And that's an encouragement to not drown in email and spend all day in meetings and stay up all night working on you know, hacking together something internal. It's that external view. Get out of the building. When in your week, when in your month, do you make the time to get out of the building? Part of that is kind of what I do when I come to, to boss, which is, I love listening for what's new. I love listening for the different perspectives. And whoa, I never thought about that before. You know, That's one of the reasons I come. It's my way of getting out of the building. I could spend my entire life with megalithic corporations and learn nothing. <laughs> so I like to come here. Then uh, we've talked a little bit about incentives. I think the question you all need to ask yourself, especially if you're in a leadership position, is have I built a set of incentives in my company that make it OK for people to bring me uncomfortable news. We've talked previously about psychological safety, how important that is. Uh, this is a 
supplement to that, the, the, that, to that idea, that that's one of the most important things you need to do. And just by way of sort of illustrating this, I thought this was interesting. So Kraft Heinz, you all know them, iconic American company, gets bought up by a Brazilian um, hedge fund called 3G. And 3G's whole thing is cost. 3G's operating model is we find a fat and happy dumb company where we think we can load it up with debt, take it off the public markets, make it more efficient, repay the debt, we take our money, life is good. That's been their model, and they've been quite successful. They bought Anheuser-Busch, and they bought a bunch of other uh, firms, and for a while, it worked very well with them. They bought Kraft, then they merged Kraft and Heinz. Cost, 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 okay. So you work in that company, and you are dealing with something called zero-based budgeting, no slack. And you'd like to take a plane flight, perhaps, to go explore what, what's happening in, I don't know, the Minneapolis market with uh, one of our condiment brands. Are you going to feel comfortable asking for that resource? Get on the plane and go do that? No. You're being asked every day, zero base, right? What do you absolutely positively need at a minimal level to make this thing work? There's no slack in the system. And we all know innovation is not predictable. It requires a certain amount of slack. These are brands that require reinvention. These are not stable, steady brands that are in good shape. They are brands that are into erosion. And in fact, it was last March, I think it was, that uh, Kraft Heinz announced a $15 billion write-down of the goodwill represented by the Kraft and uh, Oscar Mayer brands alone. Now, uh, as evidence of this, right, so Glassdoor, you all know Glassdoor, they, employees can sort of point rants and raves and praise and whatever on Glassdoor. Uh, and they, Glassdoor asks these questions, and they asked the employees of a couple of different companies, how many of you would recommend this place as a great place for friends or family to work. At Kraft Heinz, 29% said they would recommend the company, and I would bet most of those work in procurement. <laughs> Less than a third of all the people working in that company that reported were willing to say, this is a great place to work, come join us. So what kind of culture do they have, right? Is that going to be the kind of culture where uncomfortable news about the grainy, increasing irrelevance of our brands or the need to reinvest or need to do anything is going to be there? I would say not. So you need to think about incentives because, you know, it's hard enough for people to tell you bad news, right? It's hard enough to say something went wrong without actually, you know, rewarding people that don't do that. Then there's denial. Denial, our old friend Denial. Um, this, uh, this is a picture of Alan Mulally. Many of you will know him as the former CEO who turned Ford around. Very interesting story. But one of the things, as Alan tells the story, he says, well, um, you know, his first day at Ford, he pulls into the executive parking garage at the Ford Motor Company, looks around, and beholds no Ford-branded cars in the executive parking, it's not, it's not a good sign, right? Um, so Alan has a very famous management system, which if you're interested, I'd go into. But basically, it involves everybody in the decision-making body of the company, the, 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 the sort of senior leadership, getting together once a week. And they have their plan for the week. And the plan elements are all coded. coded. Green is good. I'm on track. Yellow is I'm on track, but I, I'm not on track, but I kind of know what to do about it. Red is I got a problem, and I don't know what to do about it. Now, before the first of these meetings, which, by the way, all the Ford executives resisted, and Alan's response to that is, well, it's okay. That's okay, you know? He's always smiling, and if he says that's okay, once you get to know him a little bit, the little hairs on the back of your neck should go like that because it's not okay. It's okay. You can't be a member of the management team at the Ford Motor Company if you don't come to my meeting, but it doesn't mean you're a bad person. <laughs> 
So you get the idea, right? So, so, so a couple of days before the first of these meetings, he gets the news that Ford is on track to lose something like $16.8 billion, close to $17 billion, right? Comes into the meeting, everybody's got their numbers spread, and they don't, none of them want to be there, right? And they have people that do stuff. Well, they don't do their own performance reviews. But anyway, he forces them to do it. It's all there, all green. Everything's green. And he's kind of looking at his, his executive team, and he's saying, uh, is it our plan to lose $17 billion? Because if it is, we're right on track. <laughs> and he said something I think every executive should have like on their desk somewhere. He said, you can't manage a secret. You can't manage a secret. If we can get the data out and we can talk about it, we can do something about it. But if we don't know where the problems are, they're never going to come to the surface. And they're going to be a lot worse when they do. Right, um, and so uh, and so that that sort of went on, and uh, so finally a couple of these meetings go by, and finally Mark Fields, who became CEO of Ford after Alan retired, uh, said, "All right, all right, I think I've got one of those red things you're always you're going on about. Um, I'm red on Edge." Now Edge was a small SUV that Ford was counting on. I mean, it had been hyped to the dealers, hyped to the press. This was gonna be the, the, you know, the symbol of the new Ford. I mean, it was like, it just everything was piled on this launch. And Fields has just said, it's not gonna go forward on schedule. He's just admitted to a huge issue. And the whole room goes completely quiet. All heads are kind of turning to Alan, like what is this guy gonna do? Because he's new, they don't know him yet, right? So what does he do? He stands up. Applause, great transparency, Mark. Uh, anybody got any ideas? And they go around the table, and sure enough, like somebody understood how to deal with the dealers. Somebody else had a couple of engineers that could be lent to the effort. Another person knew what like the next problem was going to be after they solved this problem. Within about, I don't know, four minutes, they had probably 60 to 70% of the solution already framed out, already framed out that quickly, that quickly, because they were working together, the expertise in the room. So I think this idea of let's not be in denial, let's get those problems out there so we can work them is a super important one, especially as you grow, as you get bigger, it gets harder. So I asked Alan uh, and, and uh, Alex, and I spent a fair amount of time with him, and, and uh, so I said to him, well, what was it like, like after that meeting? He said, oh my God, it was a rainbow in there. We had, <laughs> it was terrifying. He said, but in a way it was great. If it had genuinely all been green and we were on plan and we were on track to lose 17 billion, that would have been so much worse which I think is a very interesting, very positive um, attitude. Okay, last thing. Um, there's a wonderful science fiction writer named William Gibson um, who is famous for saying the future is already here. It's just not evenly distributed yet. Right? So here's my question to you. Um, where do you go to sort of talk to the future that's here, but not everybody knows about it yet? So here's the thing. Let's say you want to understand for your business what the 20-year-olds of 10 years from now are going to be like. Let's say that was something you had an interest in. Well, guess what? Every, I can guarantee you this with statistical certainty. Every single 20-year-old of 10 years from now is 10 years old today, and you could go have a conversation with them. Right? So here's a 10-year-old. Her name is uh, Tiffany, Trinity, Trinity, and she's addicted to these loom band things 
you know, I guess it's a popular thing. I've become convinced, by the way, that there's a subculture for everything on this planet. Whatever it is, there's a group that is into it. Um, <laughs> but Lube Bands is her thing. And her thing, she lives in a single parent household in England. And her thing is she comes home from school after, she comes home from school and she goes on her device and she watches YouTube videos of other people doing these loom band things. And then she does the loom band things of her own and she posts her own videos and it's a whole community and they all learn from each other. Well, here's the problem. The Wi-Fi had gone out at her house. So instead of using Wi-Fi, she was actually burning up network, you know, bandwidth, uh, doing these videos. And so her poor dad gets hit with a 1,400 pound uh, phone bill at the end of the month. This was not good. Uh, just a horrible situation. I, I think eventually they got it resolved, but it made, I mean, it made the papers. It was that, that dramatic. Um, so let's think a little bit though. Like what, what could we learn about Trinity and people like her that might be relevant for our long-range planning. You know? What are some of the things we'd have to, we, we think might be true? Is she gonna ever expect not to be connected? How's she gonna learn? Right? Is she gonna think she's gonna have to go to a physical place like our old gaming devices and learn there? No. It's gonna be peer-to-peer -peer learning. It's gonna be on time, on demand, anytime she wants it. That's the kind of information she's gonna be seeking out. Now, I'm not making predictions here, but what I'm saying is if you wanted to open your mind to what that future person is gonna be like, you could start to have some hypotheses built. You could start to say, here's some ideas, here's a point of view that I might have about how this could happen. So here's the summary. Uh, you have the sheet in front of you. My encouragement to you would be to you know, take a little time before you get back into the everyday post-boss <laughs> craziness um, and, and, and make a little note to yourself about what are some things you could do to fill in some of those boxes. And maybe you don't have them all. Great exercise to do with your team, by the way, those of you that have you know, teams that come. A great exercise to do with your peers. If any of you are in like a peer group, like a Tiger 21 or something, uh, terrific exercise to do there. So uh, that's the summary. So let me wrap up um, with the following. As I said, I think strategy, innovation, and digital are coming together in a way that is unprecedented, at least in my experience. Uh, and it's really going to be very central to what you folks are doing with your businesses and, and life going forward. Last thought is strategy isn't what it was. I think we've really changed our view. Inflection points take time. Eddie Lambert in 2005 saw the inflection point that was coming for uh, retail. Had he been able to bring the organization to a good place, he might have been where Lowe's or Home Depot is today, but they're not. Being aware, I think that first, that seeing part is the first step to seeing around corners effectively. So thank you very much. Don't forget, you can get regular updates from Business of Software via the newsletter. Sign up for free at businessofsoftware.org updates. See you next time. Thanks for listening to the Business of Software podcast. For more information, go to businessofsoftware.org.